The Writer's Journey. It's an ocean of experiences and choices that shape and define its path. From childhood, the feel of the pencil in hand as it touches notebook paper, the scent of books at a school book fair, or the hero or heroine of a story that ignites imagination and adventure can propel the writer to take this journey. The desire to know a character leads a writer to make choices that ultimately connect the writer to the page. Like the stars in the sky that seem to float independent of each other, there is a connectivity that forms a constellation. The same is true of a character's journey, but it's also true of the writer's. What connects the light tells the story. On this episode of The Writer's Constellation, we are joined by author John Dufresne. As the acclaimed author of many books including Louisiana Power and Light, Love Warps the Mind a Little, and The Lie That Tells a Truth, John is also a professor at Florida International University. His teachings, in addition to his TED Talk, craft books, and classes are considered a must for writers at all levels and anyone facing the blank page. He shares his journey and advice to new writers with us today. Welcome, John Dufresne. Thank you, Francis. Thank you for being here. I'm excited to have you with us. Um, I've known you for several years now, and I've had the privilege of being a student of yours in your workshops and uh, listening to your TED Talks, reading your books, and it's a real privilege to get to sit down and speak with you. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you, can you give us a little introduction about who you are, where you live, and what you're writing about? Yeah. Um, so I'm John Dufresne, and I grew up in New England, up in Massachusetts, and uh, uh, eventually uh, went to uh, graduate school at the University of Arkansas in uh, MFA program. And after that, I sort of moved around from teaching job in, uh, in Louisiana, in Georgia, and then I'm now I'm in South Florida teaching in Miami at Florida International University. I teach uh, in the MFA creative writing program. I've been here since 1989. Wow. The, the longest place I've ever lived in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, so, and uh, I, I love teaching and uh, talking about writing and thinking about stories. And, um, and, and during this time, I've been writing Primarily fiction um, began with short stories and then and novels and I write also write about writing. So if we start at the beginning here, I'd like to talk a little bit about your your childhood because I've heard you casually talk about your childhood in workshops and uh, stuff like that. And I always love hearing about big families. You come from a big family and you. Got a lot of inspiration just from being around your mom, your aunts, family members, listening to them talk. And can you share some of the some of these anecdotes with us? Well, yeah, I um, uh, grew up in uh, Worcester, Mass. Um, and uh, primarily, I'm almost uh, in a housing project. Um, and then uh, it was actually in a tornado that ripped down, ripped down the housing project. So we moved back to the old neighborhood. Um, where my grandparents uh, uh, raised their children, um, where I was born, um, and uh, my, we had a large family. Uh, my grandfather was one of 19 children. Um, they weren't all around at the same time, um, 
But so every Sunday we met at my grandmother's house for dinner. She made the same thing uh, every Sunday after mass. Uh, people congregated. What did she make? She made, uh, uh, what was it? A pot roast, um, green beans, and brown potatoes, like these baked potatoes with a gravy on them. Uh, and she made a blueberry pie, a chocolate cream pie, and an apple pie. And that's what we had every every Sunday. And then the men would uh, get up and walk into the living room and uh, watch a baseball game or whatever the season was. And the women stayed in the kitchen and smoked Pall Malls and uh, drank coffee with condensed milk. Uh, it was a carnation evaporated milk, I guess it was called. Uh, and smoked cigarettes, and, and I stayed in the kitchen with them because they were telling interesting stories. Even though I liked baseball, I, I rather hear about the people in the neighborhood. So it was like gossip, and um, I wasn't. I was. My job was to like fill the coffee pot, fill the coffee cups, and uh, uh, empty the ashtrays, and then I could sit there if I didn't say anything. So I just listened to the stories about people that I kind of knew. You know, I knew them from church, or I knew them from the neighborhood, and who was in trouble and uh, everything. They, they all looked so delighted while they were talking about all this trouble in the neighborhood. Um, and then I realized later on that that's what fiction is. It's gossip about people that you make up. Um, and then you start spreading some rumors around. So um, it was, <laughs> there you I, have a story. It's where I learned to kind of love stories. Uh, that and my father would tell me uh, bedtime stories at night. Uh, to bribe me to go to sleep and they were uh, they were fairy tales so he was just telling me fairy tales and I liked I know I liked Hansel and Gretel was my favorite so he could tell me that every night if he wanted to um, and uh, I thought he was making them up because he didn't read them he just told them uh, and so I thought wow this guy's he invented wolves he's amazing um, and uh, so that was the other way I, le I learned about stories, those two things. And so I've always had a, uh, I always love people telling stories, sitting around telling stories, which is what the family did all the time. Were you a kid that wrote in journals? Did, uh, did I write? No, I didn't. Um, let me see. Uh, I don't think I wrote, uh, uh, I mean, I, I wrote in school. I was, I was actually good at it. It was the one thing I could do was to be able to write you know, a theme, a composition, whatever they were calling it that year. Um, I was good at it. I even uh, would write some for other people. Um, and, uh, but I didn't, it wasn't really, it wasn't, uh, I didn't think of myself as a writer and I didn't do it on my own time uh, or for, yeah, I did it to hand in to somebody, to show to somebody. Um, and probably when I got to uh, high school, I started, I did, in high school, I started keeping my uh, notebooks, which I still have. Uh, uh, mostly, I started out writing poetry. Uh, somewhere in high school, we read the romantic poets, Byron, Keats, Shelley, all those guys. And, and, and I, I loved, heard you in, in, in an interview saying that you were very inspired by all the romantic poets. Yes, yeah, yeah. I wanted to, and, and uh, so I started reading... Um, poetry and writing poetry and keeping it in a notebook. And as I said, I still have all of those. Um, and I uh, went through, you know, many of them. Um, and uh, it wasn't until somewhere in high school, again, I, uh, 
I want to say maybe I was a junior in high school and I read um, within a couple of months of each other, I read To Kill a Mockingbird and uh, Catcher in the Rye. And I thought, well, this is what I want to do this. I want to write stories. I want to be carried away. The way, the way I was carried away, I wanted to carry away a reader like that. I was in a better world, and a more interesting world. And um, the other, the other, I just remember the other one I read was uh, Mutiny on the Bounty, the, the, the Bounty Trilogy, the three books. A, a, a teacher, my guidance counselor, suggested reading it, and, and I did. And he would take me out of class so we could talk about the books. Uh, so that was my deal. I could get out of math class if I kept reading. Uh, and he and I think I was the only one reading what he what he wanted uh, someone to read. So we had a great time talking about books. Uh, so that got me going. And then once that happened, once I read those books, I was already a reader, but I was reading uh, nonfiction. I was reading about sports. I was kind of a little jock. I read a lot of sports. I read a lot about science, birds. I love birds and geography and all that. So, but it was now when I got to read. Uh, uh, fiction, Crime and Punishment was another one I read that year. Uh, those books, I thought, this is this is wonderful, and I want to do this. I want to read them, and I want to write them. So, uh, but you didn't find your way. You didn't find your way to writing, though, at that point, if I recall. Right. Um, I kept writing, but it was for myself. Uh, and I was writing stories, and um, uh, yeah. Um, but I I went into let's see when I. I Went to college. I was an English major. I did all that. Um, I liked reading. I wanted to get paid for reading books, but I couldn't figure out how to do that. Um, so I was exposed to lots of great literature that I maybe should have already read when I was in college. And then um, I remember like sitting on the grass uh, early spring, one semester reading uh, The Sound and the Fury. And I said, oh, man, I, I am slain in the spirit here. I, I can't give this up. And um, I started living. Uh, I started living in the South through Southern literature, which I love. Uh, so long before I lived in the South, I was here in my imagination. I was already living here. What was it about Southern literature that was drawing you in so much? It was the stories. It was the language. It was um, uh, the um, I, yeah. It was just the stories. Um, I, it, it was uh, Flannery O'Connor and uh, Eudora Welty and, and uh, Faulkner, as I said already. Those are my um, the people I read most. And there's the people in it was so interesting. And the writers or the narrators or the culture itself was so tolerant of um, eccentricities and people who were different and strange. And I said, that, although that's, those are the people I'm interested in. So um, and they liked. Uh, I got a sense that people in the and this was confirmed when I finally moved there that people in the South um, looked at each other as potential narratives that there's a story everywhere uh, and uh, the language uh, that I was reading the language I grew up with uh, my grandparents uh, were from Canada um, and uh, all of my friends grandparents or parents in many cases were from another country there, there are all the immigrant families, and uh, the, the English language was an, a language of uh, commerce. You did your shopping, you bought things, you you did your work, and you in English. But the language around the house, when you told stories, in my case, was French. My friend Tony's case was Italian. You know, so there, 
all these people. So, it, but in the South, when I when I finally moved down there, uh, English was the language of storytelling. Uh, it was the language, uh, you know, not just of karmas, but of everything. And and and, and people liked. Uh, there was a certain uh, in New England, uh, people were kind of my uh, the immigrant folks were. Uh, uh, more reticent with the language. They weren't as confident in the use of it because it was a second language. Not in the South, of course, they'd been speaking English for for generations and, and uh, knew how to make music with it. And so that's what I listened to. And uh, uh, it was just, uh, I was I was thrilled to be living in the South when I finally got there. Hmm. So let's delve into your first collection of short stories, The Way That Water Enters Stone it's a collection that you wrote. Um, I guess you were coming out of your your graduate program, right? Um, some of them I wrote while I was in the program, um, and I think the I'm trying to think the uh, there's a story in there called Surveyors, which is the only it was the first story I wrote that was actually based on my own life. And my relationship with my grandfather and all of that kind of thing. And I wrote it uh, while I was a student and it got published. So it was um, was wonderful. I said, well, somebody else likes me. <laughs> now, <laughs> I don't, don't want to gloss over this. I mean, you, you you were working as a house painter. Was that during college or after college? Oh, that was after. I mean, well, it was twice. My grandfather was a house painter. Uh and uh, wallpaper, you know, interior, all that kind of stuff. And, and when I was a kid, I worked with him. Uh, you know, I loaded up his station wagon in the morning, put in the tools, put in a case of beer, uh, and we drove off to some house and I would paint the door or something while he was working. And uh, So I knew that business. I knew that world of painting. And then uh, when I got out of uh, graduate school and came back to uh, – well, I didn't actually come back. No, that was after, excuse me. Um, it was before graduate school. Um, I had been painting houses. It was after uh, undergraduate school. I painted houses for, I had my own business for a while and uh, wasn't any good at it. I worked for friends for several years painting for them. Uh, it was, uh, it was, you know, it was a nice job. Um, it wasn't what I wanted to be doing. So what I was doing was going home and writing stories at night um and it came by then i would show them to people and see what they had to say and uh i was uh yeah i worked on a literary magazine in new england so some of them were published there um so tell us a little bit more about surveyors the story well it was something my grandfather and i when i was a kid uh he grew a uh, tomato garden in, uh, in a vacant lot beside his tenement, a three-decker, a three they call them in New England. Uh, it's kind of the indigenous architecture, three three stories with a family living on each on each flat. Um, and next door was a vacant lot. My grandfather, for years, grew tomatoes. Every spring, he planted tomatoes, and every fall, he harvested them. And I helped him. I went out there and weeded them, did what he asked me to do, held the, held the tomatoes. And every night, the summer... We would go out there um, and sit, get some tomatoes with a little salt and eat them like apples and just put salt on every bite and eat them, sit there and talk. And we talked and mostly he talked and I asked him questions. And it was a wonderful, 
uh, ritual that he and I had. And then one day we were sitting out there and we looked up and I saw some guys coming in, uh, came out in a truck. They walked in and they started walking around the tomato garden. I said to my grandfather, who didn't want anyone in his tomato garden, I said, what are those guys doing? And he said, they're surveyors. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, they're going to build a house over there. And I said, they can't. That's our tomato garden. And of course they did because it wasn't his land. Someone bought it, built a house. We lost the tomato garden. I lost that ritual of hanging out with my grandfather. And uh, it was that loss that years later, when I'm now in graduate school, that made me write that story to get it back, to be able to hold on to that uh, as much as I could. So, um, so it all took place in one night rather than over a whole summer. Uh, and uh, yeah, so uh, it was good, yeah. It felt good to be able to uh, write about uh, my family in, in a way that I, I don't think I ever have again. I think it's uh, interesting to point out this book, especially for listeners that are just starting off writing and they might be trying their hand at short stories. Um, I wanted to take a look at your collection here so that other writers might uh, pick it up and, and just take a look. There's a lot of different kinds of stories in here. Um, the Freezer Jesus is interesting. Can you talk about that a little bit and how that came to be? So that was... Uh... I was living in Louisiana at the time. I was living in Monroe, Louisiana. <coughs> Excuse me. And <clears throat> I saw an article in the Shreveport Times uh, with a photograph of um, a family in Estill Springs, Tennessee. I don't know why I remember this, but, but and it was that they had uh, a freezer on their front porch. Uh, I assume they didn't have enough room inside the house. They had it out there, and it had a picture of Jesus on it. And you could see Jesus in the photograph in the newspaper, kind of. Um, and it it became, uh, a, people started worshiping it. People in that area started coming in buses uh, to see the freeze of Jesus. So I wrote, I wrote a story based on that. Um, I set it in uh, uh, Washita Parish, which is where I was living in Louisiana, and imagined what it would be like to have Jesus appear on your freezer, and now everybody's showing up at your house, and uh, you can't keep anything uh, clean. And, and, uh, and what I added to the story was that uh, it was a, a the, the narrator. Um, and lived there, an elderly gentleman, and his elderly sister lived there, and she was blind. And she uh, begins to pray to the Jesus on the freezer to restore her sight. And, of course, it's not going to happen. Um, and uh, so um, that was it. It was him, him telling the story about his sister and about what happened when this appeared. And he took it. When I, when I looked at the photograph in the paper and I saw the story, I thought, this is kind of funny that people would do this. I, I, I started writing it with the idea of satire in mind. I would kind of make light and make fun of this. But then I let the man who owned the freezer tell the story, and he didn't think it was funny at all. Um, he took it seriously um, and uh, treated his sister with respect and all that, and it, everything changed as soon as I let him talk. And so I learned a lesson about listen to your characters, not yourself. Um, and uh, 
don't write with uh, an agenda in mind. Write to explore the problem, whatever it is. You know, so. And that takes time. It does. It does. Um, I've noticed that you have, uh, in workshop, talked about using photographs actually as a springboard, as a prompt uh, for story. And that's uh, something like it sounds like it's kind of a practice you've cultivated over years of, uh, you know, I think you said once in workshop that you collect uh, uh, photography books and you're always flipping through them and you'll just throw yourself into a photo and let that just that's the scene. And then let's go from there. Yeah, I also have uh, I go to thrift stores and buy old photographs. Um, so it's like I have an, an instant family. I have right. I can see from here across my office a big milk carton. It's full of photographs that I've bought over the years of people I don't know. Um, and I just pull them out every once in a while and try to imagine who's there. Now, these days, it's easy to do it online, right? Just just go like put I put abandoned houses. And then I go I get these images and then I, I try to write like uh, who is it? Um, uh, is an abandoned uh, poem by Ted Kuzer called "Abandoned Farmhouse," I think, or "Abandoned Farm," and when he his the, the persona imagines who'd lived there based on the evidence of what's left in the house, and so uh, I do that by myself, and I do it with my students. Um, I also buy old tintypes off uh, eBay and uh, put them up on the wall uh, on a magnetic board, so I have again. All these people, mostly from, uh, well, now, two centuries ago, right, from the, the late 18th. Um, and, yeah, it's just, uh, I love photography, and, and uh, I love just imagining the, the lives of the people who are in there. Um, I've written stories. I've also do it with paintings. Uh, certain. I've done it with, I was going to say Ansel Adams, there's a photograph of uh, Hernandez, Um New Mexico, uh, taken from a, you know, looking down on a farmhouse in a cemetery. I've written a story based on that. I've written stories, uh, mostly flash fiction kind of things on Edward Hopper uh, paintings. I love Hopper uh, and uh, imagining myself in, in the, the world of the painting. So, um, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's great inspiration for me. Just like it's like when we were uh, in high school. I used to I used to meet my friends after school because we all went to different schools. Uh, I would go. We would all take our buses downtown and stand in front of a store across the street from City Hall. Called it was called Ben Homes, Ben Home and McKay, and we'd sit. We'd stand there at it, and it was a crosswalk, four-way crosswalk, and so it was a busy intersection in Worcester. And we sat there and we watched people go by and we made up stories about the people who walked by um, to each other. And if you go there at the same time every day, you see the same people every day walking by this guy. You know, he's today he's got a, you know, a blue suit on yesterday. He had a great and we make up. And so the stories continued. We would just pick up the next day what was going on in the stories. I didn't know that I was practicing to be a writer when I was doing that. We just thought we were we were trying to make each other laugh. And we did. So, uh, but it was always looking for the, the stories that we find. Now, in the writing of this book, The Way That Water Enters Stone, your first short story collection, there's an interesting story with how, um, I'm going to let you tell it, how your 
believe it was your agent or editor wanted one more story. Oh, right. And one right. was kind of thrown in there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I had, I, I can't remember exactly, but I know that uh, I had a number of stories and probably a few of them didn't make the cut. I, I can't remember uh, how many or uh, what, what, what those stories were right now. But um, so Jill uh, Bylosky, who's my editor then and still is, said, um, well, I think we need one more story to fill this out because we were talking about it. And I had stories set in the South and stories set in the North. And I think we were well, like all, alternating them and, and a long story and a shorter story and all that. She said, one more. And I said, all right. So I started, I was, um, I guess I was still living in Louisiana then. Um, and I was writing about, I may, yeah, I was writing about, um, uh, the town. I started writing about Monroe where I was living. I just wanted to write about the place. And so I had done a lot of research about the place. Um, and, uh, and of course I was living there, so I knew about it. And then I said, but I'm a fiction writer. I can't write about the place. I need some people. And, um, so I, uh, wrote a story called uh, The Fontana Gene, and it was, uh, I mentioned Faulkner before, and I'll, it, it was inspired in two ways by Faulkner. One was, I wanted a family that was cursed, in a sense, the curse that, um, which is something, yeah, so it was kind of like, I said, I, I need my own Snopes family, um, and so I made them the Fontanas. There happened to be a road in Monroe called Fontana Road, so I just took that name, Fontana. Turned out later on, I found out it was named for family that was still there, but I didn't know that at the time. Um, so, and then I took the voice, uh, uh, the narrative voice of uh, Faulkner's story, A Rose for Emily, which was a first person plural narrator, a spokesperson for the town. And I said, I loved it. And I said, that would be great for a story um, and for a longer story. So I started with that. So I wrote the story about the last Fontana. Uh, suppose, you know, hopefully the town wants it to be the last Fontana because we can't, we don't want any more disasters happening in this, in this town. So that was it. And then I wrote lots more, lot, a lot about it. It all didn't fit into the story. So I had that. Um, you want me to continue about this? Yeah. So, so I just think it's interesting that, you know, here you, you've got the short story collection, you're and so many writers, you know, dream of this all happening. And then at the last minute, one more story gets added and it just happens to be the story that's going to be the catalyst for your novel that would follow Louisiana power and light. So what happened was I, we got, I sent the book in, um, and I was living in Louisiana because I know where I was sitting now <laughs> at my desk um, and talking to Jill on the phone. And she said, um, well, the book's kind going to come out and all that kind of stuff. And you have a, do you have a, a novel? And I said, no, I got more stories. And there was a pause. And she said, do you have a novel? Um, and I said, oh, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I said, yeah, yeah, I got one in the, yeah, okay. Um, so um, I said, yeah, I'm working on it. Give me some time, blah, blah, blah. And of course, I didn't have one. So um, I thought I had written, as I said, a lot more about the Fontanas than made it into the story. I had gone all the way back uh, 
you know, uh, through generations of Fontana. So I just started working. I, 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 I built on that story, the Fontana gene, and turned it into what would be Louisiana Power and Light, the novel, um, because uh, that's what she wanted. She wanted a novel. And, and I le- had to learn how to write a novel by writing Louisiana Power and Light. You learn how to write a novel by writing one. Uh, of course, it takes a long time, as you said. So I'm going to ask, if you don't mind, to read from Louisiana Power and Light, just a short little passage here, because I think our listeners would uh, appreciate hearing it. Okay. And uh, all right. So this is from this is the opening of the novel. Um, It's the opening of the novel, but it's the last thing I wrote for the novel. And I'll tell you why after I read these first three paragraphs. You're there. And here we are in Monroe, Louisiana, city of steady habits, crossroads of pipelines, corrugated paper capital of the North Delta parishes, elevation 65 feet, population 56,600. And you, where you are, and we here, are all of us situated about halfway between stars and atoms, gazing first toward the ones, then the others and every once in a while closing our eyes and looking within. Telling stories about the Fontanas is our attempt at creating the truth of the past by considering its facts and exploring its sequence. Narrative has a long tradition here in Northeast Louisiana. About the time that Moses was guiding the Israelites out of Egypt, we already had the largest city in North America, just east of Bayou Mason, at what we now call Poverty Point. The two main streets of this city were aligned with the summer and winter solstices, and the citizens carried on a brisk commerce with the aboriginals across the continent. They told their story by sculpting the earth into effigies, told how they arrived, descending from their heaven on the back of a falcon, how they settled here, prospered, and then vanished. All of that just a few miles from where our our own tale begins. A story we believe, and perhaps we are out of fashion here, should exert a moral force, should charge and illuminate. Like light, it must have direction, intensity, and color. This, then, is not the family's unmodified chronology, if indeed such a contrivance exists, and if it did, would it matter? This is Billy Wayne Fontana's story, an emblem of the family's history, the story of stories that have been changed to make new stories, altered to illustrate how the one thing causes the next thing to happen. Our story is what we say and how we say it. I love it. Thank you you for reading. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. What happened was the book was done. Jill, again, Jill said, um, with the, uh, she said, it's hard to figure out who's talking when it starts off, uh, who the narrator is in the story. Um, can you give me, you know, can you figure out how to make it easier for the reader to know, you know, as I said, the voice of the town. Uh, and uh, so I said, so I wrote the prologue for that reason to set it up. And we end up by the end of the prologue sitting on uh, my my actual friends, two friends, my actual friends at the time are in the prologue. And we're sitting on one of their front porch and the other one is telling stories. Um, And so that's how it began. So it was like we're telling stories. uh, And and again, it was that kind of colloquial. I want the sense of, 
We're just talking to each other here. We're telling each other stories. What's important is the story, not the writing, the story. So, yeah. It's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. How long did it take you to write this novel? Over four years. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it was, as I said, it was a learning experience. I finished it. I, when I finished, I was living here in Florida, South Florida. Um, and, uh, you know, things happened like I, I got to, uh, I don't know, a couple of hundred pages or a hundred pages. And I realized that uh, Billy Wayne didn't have a job. And I said, well, wait a minute, he's, an adult. Oh, he's got to have a job somewhere. What, what can I, what can he do? And I said, well, I, what do I know about? I said, well, I know about teaching. Nobody wants to read about a teacher. Um, and uh, my father happened to work for the electric light company in New England. So I said, oh, I'll do that. I'll have him work for the power company. And if I have any questions about work, I'll call my father and he'll tell me. Um, and of course, I was fortunate enough to live in a state that had that whose power company was Louisiana Power and Light, and I went, oh my God, what a title! <laughs> so I got the job and the title, and then I spent uh, two or three weeks. This is before computers, down at the Washita Parish Public Library, researching everything that I could about the two words power and light, and I made I paid reams of notes about those two words, um, and I, I said I'm going to use every possible meaning of those words in this novel and I, I set out to do that but didn't which is okay uh but it was just like uh like wow uh and in fact I ended up calling my father later on saying what would happen if this you know um how would he fix this and that kind of thing so it was kind of uh it was good and then you have some characters in your novel when you that don't pass the audition they're not good. You thought they were going to be great, and then they turn out to be flat, and you have to get rid of them. And some characters walk on stage, and you thought, well, um, he's just going to be a cab driver to drive him over here, and then he ends up being more interesting than you thought, and he's in there for the whole novel. Uh, and so that those kinds of things. It's like you're you're kind of a yeah. I think I think of it as like a director of a uh, a film. Uh, or a stage play, and you're auditioning people for the roles, and sometimes you say, we'll call you, <laughs> but another time you say, stay right here. So. Can you speak for a moment about the discipline that it takes to finish a novel, or to begin the novel, to commit to it, to finish it, and, and maybe look at Louisiana Power and Light as an example? It's four years of work. On yeah. a day-to-day -day basis, what does that kind of look like? Um, it... Uh... Well, and this is, you, you figure, uh, I was, I'm a person that's always had a day job and it's been a great job, right? Teaching. So I, I get to talk about writing all the time and think about it. But, um, so I don't have all day to write every day. Uh, so you write when you can. I used, I used to write, uh, do all my writing, um, in the, uh, morning, um, because I, I thought of that as, you know, uh, the important work and, um, and then after that, I would, uh, so I, you know, by noon or something like that, I would finish writing and then I would do my schoolwork and then go teach and all that sort of thing. So it was doing that every day. It was just going to the, and it, and it turns out, um, I think it's easy to begin anything. It's easy to start. You get an idea, you get a character and you just go and you're all excited and you start writing and everything's going swimmingly, you know, it's also easy to end something. It's that whole thing in the middle 
Uh, that's the hard part. <laughs> and, and you always get to some point uh, in the um, writing where uh, of, of anything, short story, novel, where it's um, uh, you lose confidence in your ability to finish it. Uh, and, and you, you it's the, it's not breathing the way you hoped it would be. Um, and you're stuck and you're mired and you don't know what to do. Um, and what you learn uh, or what I learned writing Louisiana and Power and Light was you can't think your way through it. You can't talk your way through it. You can't, uh, you can't walk away and come back and think that it's going to get better. You just got to write your way through it. So you just keep writing because it's that, it's, that's the way you think best. So you stay there and you write crap and you write crap for uh, or what you think is crap. may not be, but you think it is for days, for weeks, for months. And then one day you come out the other side and say, okay, I solved that problem. I don't know how I got here, but I got here because I wrote my way through it. Didn't, didn't walk away from it. You know, it's like if your car uh, breaks down on the side of the road, you, uh, you don't walk away. Um, you open the hood, see what's going on inside. You try to fix it. Um, so, yeah. Um, so that I think it was just that. And it's not discipline. So much as just yes, yeah, the love for it that you want it. You like these people so much, you not you want to do justice to their lives, so you stay there and do it. That's why you need to write about what's important. If you if it's not important to you, it's easy to walk away. But if it's important, you'll stay there. You won't walk away. You're writing about what's uh, you know what keeps you up at night. You write about what you don't understand. I think this is a nice segue into um, out of fiction and into your nonfiction work, uh, because I think your nonfiction runs parallel to your very rich and dynamic teaching life. Mm -hmm. You're a professor at Florida right. International University, uh, but you've also written several really popular craft books that expands your teaching uh, to right. other students all around the world. And that also led, I believe, to your TED Talk. You have a really popular TED Talk, and I'm going to link it to our Writer's Constellation Facebook page. Um, I've used it in, in classes that I've taught. Um, and for our listeners, it's, it's a TED Talk. It's called How to Write Story. Yes. And um, John goes through, you know, basically the beginning, middle, and end of a story in a very short amount of time on stage. Yeah, they gave you 17 minutes to do it. <laughs> yes, yes. And I, I, I watched that and I thought, did, was he talking off the cuff or is this is memorized? But Oh, I memorized it. Yeah, it's incredible. You didn't stammer once. <laughs> um, but uh, you have a great craft book called The Lie That Tells the Truth. Yes. So can we talk about that for a little bit, how that came to be and... Yeah, well, it grew out of, as you said, it grew out of my teaching, um, and it grew out. I, uh, uh, I, I like talking about stories. Um, I, I know how I was taught. I know what worked for me when I was a student. Uh, I know what uh, what my mentor said that made sense to me. Uh, so I was like, how can I do what they did for me for my students? What worked for me? And maybe it'll work for other people as well. And so um, tried to break down <clears throat> the story writing process because that's what I think. <clears throat> excuse me. Learning the process is more important than learning to write one good story or five good stories. Learning how to be a writer. So it's how does this happen? 
which is, of course, what we've been talking about this morning. Um, so it was like, so this is how you do it. So I, I think the, um, the, the uh, various chapters came out of probably my lectures in the classroom. You know, I, I teach introductory classes, master class, all these kinds of things, and combining them all over the years. I started every year I would go through all my notes and make them a little clearer and expand them. And eventually they sort of, I said, well, you know, now I can make this into a book because I have, I can make these sort of discrete chapters. And I've always been, I've always liked generative exercises in class where stories can begin right here as was here. And so I started, you know, uh, collecting, uh, and writing down, making up exercises, borrowing from other places. Um, John Gardner in uh, The Art of Fiction, I think, somewhere, I'm remembering it now, is I'm not sure he had it set up as an exercise, but he said something like, describe a, uh, a farmhouse or describe a barn or something like that um, from the point of view of somebody who's dying, but don't tell us he's dying. And it, like, what would it be like? And so that was the, you know, that like, oh, okay. Um, and then I started doing those photographs by myself, writing stories, and said, oh, we can do that. Um, and so forth. And it sort of grew like that. And I kept writing down exercises. I always was always keeping every quote I ever heard about writing that I liked. I kept, I had a list of those written down. At first, I had them written on you know, on note paper, and eventually I put them on the computer and put them in various categories, plot, process, place, setting, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I had all of those, and I, I still collect those things whenever I hear something interesting. So I had all of these voluminous kinds of notes around here, and I put that book together. Um, it's just kind of like, yeah, you, um, this is kind of like, you can take this as a guide and work by yourself, and maybe uh, get a story together by going, you know. So if we could do a little mini craft talk here for just like two minutes, I'm looking at the pair. I'm just opening the book cause I've read this book before, but I'm just opening it to the section called let's talk about dialogue. Um, because we talk about this in class a lot and it's to me, dialogue is the hardest, uh, to teach because, um, everybody has preconceived notions of what they think is interesting or funny or what somebody would say. And I've heard writing teachers say before, you want to suggest what is said, not maybe what you actually heard. Um, because the dialogue also has to be fresh. It has to be something you haven't heard before. And so in your book here, you talk about here's something else dialogue is not. It's not the way we speak. Dialogue must appear realistic without being realistic. It's not natural. It must suggest naturalness. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, and uh, that, that was probably an interesting lesson that I learned. Probably, I'm sure, not probably, I'm sure I learned it um, in graduate school. That um, uh, some of the writers, what I mentioned earlier, uh, Salinger, Catcher in the Rye. Um, what I remember reading that, uh, lying on my bed in my room, uh, as I said, being carried away, um, and my mother calling me to come down for supper, and I wouldn't go. I wouldn't even leave the room. I don't even think I answered her. 
I didn't want to leave that page. And what Salinger, what what I learned from Salinger, among many things at that point, was, was that voice. He was holding Caulfield, telling his own story. So every word in that is like dialogue. He's talking to me, telling me the story. And then he's writing about uh, in, in, in the voices of the other characters in his story. And it was that was when I, I learned uh, I began to learn uh, that. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like we talk like that, but we don't really quite talk like that. We say much more than than he put down. Um, you know, and then I immediately, by the way, I was in high school and I immediately all of my essays started sounding like Colin Caulfield um, and everybody was everybody was a phony and all that kind of stuff. And I was learning because I wanted to you. We learn by imitating. Like, that's how we learn to speak. We imitate the sounds we hear and all that. And the best way to uh, learn how to write is to imitate the writers that you love. And then you, eventually you find your own voice. So, uh, and then as I mentioned also, uh, the wonderful uh, dialogue that runs all the way through uh, 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 To Kill a Mockingbird. So I was learning, uh, I was really attracted to dialogue, to people speaking. Uh, and so, uh, it took me a while to learn. You got to get rid of all of the kinds of uh, the things we say to each other that are meaningless. We say them. There's little ritual lines of greeting, like "Hey, how you doing? Good. You too. Bye. See you." You know that. That's all gone. You don't keep that in there. Um, um, I was sitting in a uh, not George Garrett, who was a wonderful uh, uh, American writer who has who has left us, um, and. Uh, He's, I think I was in Georgia and I invited him to a conference there and he give, gave a talk about, and, and part of it was about writing dialogue. And he said, the best single thing I can tell you about writing good dialogue is to eliminate all of those little expletives, little words that come before a comma and, then, and lead into a sentence like, yes, no. Uh, you know, all of that stuff, and boom, it just tightens everything up. And you say, so, no, I don't want to go. You don't have to say, no, I don't want to go. Boom, there it is. Of course. So uh, learning little things like that uh, and get rid of repetitions and get rid of uh, the ums and the ahs. And, yeah, that's the way we speak. You need to suggest it rather than write it. Um, I was, I um, let's see, what was it? I have a character in Louisiana Power and Light who has a uh, – a lisp, and uh, he—I forget what the narrator says. All his L's are W's or something like that. And, and uh, so I wrote what what I did in the novel was I wrote it. Uh, I had to say that, but I couldn't write it like that um, because it would have been distracting, and you would not have known what he was saying some of the times, and it would have been pejorative. It would have been pointing the finger at the guy. But it was important because later on, he's making an anonymous phone call. And of course, it's not anonymous because <laughs> somebody knows who he hear his voice. But I didn't want to, you know, and then I then I was writing a screenplay for that book. And the, and the producer made me write it with all of the all of the um, misspellings in it, which I thought was a bad idea, but I did it. Um, and uh, so anyway, things like that. Uh, suggest say less you never have to for example there's no reason ever to have i think characters say hello or goodbye or goodbye 
it's over. Start, you know, start late. End scene. And get out. Yes. So, and you have another craft book, which is really good, uh, Flash. Yes. That's out. And um, another craft book after that. I had a book called uh, It's Life Like This, which was about specifically about writing novels. It says something like how to write a novel in six months, how to write. Yeah, I think that's what it says. Um, and uh, which was not my idea. My idea was how to write the draft, a draft of your novel in six months. But my editor said that wasn't sexy enough. So how to write your novel in six months. And when she she, she put that as the sub uh, uh, title, I then wrote an introduction explaining that's really not what I meant. <laughs> I meant the draft. You know, and of course, it's impossible anyway for me. I couldn't do it. But as an idea of like, let's if we do this and it's like a timeline you follow in that book. And by six months, you could have gone through the whole thing. It'll be a first draft. You'll have to rewrite, but you'll have something done. I have another book coming out on craft uh, in April. Uh, It's called Storyville, uh, an illustrated guide to writing fiction. Um, and I did it with my nephew, who is a, an illustrator by trade. Uh, and he and I were talking about doing a book together one time. And I said, OK, let's do this. Well, and so uh, that I'm actually I have the galleys right here beside me on my desk and I'm going through them now uh, doing. So, uh, so that's uh, fun. So this isn't a question that I ask everybody, but I want to ask you, because I think that the stereotype of the writer is that they're very introverted and quiet. And what I know of you is you're very gregarious and you're very social. You give a lot of yourself, you and Cindy both, very social. You are with students, you're at workshops, you're teaching, you you both give of yourself um, to friends, to students, to strangers, you, you're very giving like that. And sometimes I think, how, how do you find the time really to, to pull back and write? Because you're, you do write a lot, but yet I know that you guys really are very outward and with people a lot. Um, it might be, uh, yeah, I do like people. Um, and I like hanging around with people. I like telling stories with people and all of that. Uh, and, um, I like uh, friendship is very important to me. We never have as m- enough friends. Uh, and anyway, but I think part of it is because you your work is solitary. You can't have anybody here when you're working. You can't have anybody, you know, in talking to you, or disrupting you. you. You know, you you don't answer the phone. You turn off your email. And all of a sudden, you sit here and you work by yourself. So that when you when you've done that, you want to talk to somebody, you want to go out and see somebody, you want to go to the store, you know, anything to get out there with people. So, um, and, uh, yeah. And I, and, and, um, I like telling people stories too. So <laughs> pigeonhole people and say, you know, okay, you know what just happened? Um, and I, 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 I feel exhilarated when I'm telling stories or listening to stories of people. Um, and, and my family knows, uh, Oh, that uh, if they tell me something, it's probably going to end up in a story. Uh, sometimes they say, I'm not going to tell you because you'll write about it. I say, yes, I will. Uh, so don't tell me if you don't want me to write about it. Uh, and um, But usually they tell you anyway because stories are just too good to keep these oh, When you were talking about living in the South, um, I have found, and I've, you know, I've grown up in Florida, 
Um, but I've just found that when I tell people that I write or that I'm a writer, they, they always want to tell me a story about their families and they want me to write it and they want me to get it right. It's almost like I'm telling this to you now and I know it's, I know you're going to love it so much. You're going to want to write it and I need you to get this right. And <laughs> they really want the story written and um, get the names right. They don't care. You know, I, I'm like, but you know, these people are, would they want you telling it? I don't care. I'm telling you the story <laughs> and they're determined. They take ownership of it. And so I think it's interesting. Oh, yeah. And they know they're not going to write it. So. Right. Yes. And then you almost feel like, oh gosh, I, I think the expectation now is I better go back and write this story. We, I was in, in class last night. We had a workshop last night and one of the students was talking about uh, how um, he, a lot of his friends think that they're, they are in his stories. <laughs> Well, that's me. That's me. He said most of them are wrong, but some of them are right. Uh, and they, if they're not in, they're upset. Uh, hey, put me in. Why didn't let you put him in? Why didn't you put me in? All right, right. Uh, and uh, yeah, um, people do like to see themselves portrayed in, in any way. Uh, but yeah. Well, it's been a real treat to talk to you today, and I appreciate it. And I want to end with one of your quotes. There's so many great quotes in The Lie That Tells the Truth, but one of my favorite is when you close the book and you give your students the instruction to make every sentence you write an event. And that's, I think, powerful advice. Oh, thank you. I believe it. Not easy to do. No, no, that's the hard part, right? But if you think of every sentence as an event, um, I think you've got some pretty good marching orders. Do you want to tell us really quick about some stuff you've got coming up? Uh, I don't know what I got. I'm going to be doing um, uh, Writers in Paradise a conference in St. Petersburg in January, I'm not quite, I think the weekend of, uh, the week of Martin Luther King birthday there. Now I think it, the class is filled up, but the events in the evening for if people are around are all open to the public. It's at Eckerd College. Um, and, uh, I'll, you know, I'll be at the AWP conference and uh, doing a panel in, uh, I think it's March this year, February or March. Uh, I've got, uh, as I said, I'm working on, the. The book uh, Storyville will be coming out in April. Uh, I just I just sent in my next novel to my agent and my editor. I got notes, uh, yeah, I got notes back from my agent, but not from my editor. But I'll need to start work, working on that probably next week uh, once I get get through this galleys over here, and then uh, start we were we working that. And uh, yeah, so just keep writing the next thing. Oh. I've I've got a movie coming out in April. Oh, wow. Tell us about that. Uh, it's a movie called Driftless. Um, and it's set, uh, well, it's, it's set in a state park with the, uh, in the Midwest. Uh, and actually what's called the Driftless area of the Midwest. Uh, with park rangers. The park is closed by the government on a 4th of July weekend. And bad things start to happen. Uh, and it, it's uh, Grand Valley state production grand valley productions um with through grand valley state university produced it or 
So it's an independent film. I co-wrote the screenplay. I, uh, and uh, uh, and it's gonna, I'm going to go up for the premiere in Grand Rapids in April. Oh, that's exciting. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. Well, we will link to all that on the Facebook page. And uh, we'll also link to your website so that our listeners can find you. So thank you, John Dufresne. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Writer's Constellation, written, produced, and hosted by Francis Susanna Neville, audio producer Emmanuel Elliott. The Writer's Constellation theme music is composed by Isaac Barzo. All show notes and links mentioned in this episode can be found on our Facebook page. We are The Writer's Constellation on all platforms. Thank you for listening, and remember, what connects the light tells the story.